Discover how to be a powerful tool in the hands of God next on Abounding Grace. This is amazing grace. Welcome to Abounding Grace. We'll be hearing from Pastor Ed Taylor in a moment, who today continues our series in Daniel with a message called, You Are Powerful in God's Hands. If you'll recall, Nebuchadnezzar received a troubling dream. He's confused. And then along comes Daniel to tell him what this dream is all about. God would use Daniel in a powerful way. And Pastor Ed Taylor believes the Lord wants to do the same in and through your life. Now, Daniel... He says, no one else has been able to help you, but there's a God in heaven that can. No one else can help you. And and he doesn't take the credit for himself. I've seen so many people at this point, Daniel being so confident in what God's revealed to him, he could have taken all the credit. He could have said, I know, and never given credit to God. He could have given the dream to him and said, that all came from me. You know, I'm just like, I'm a super boy. You know, you picked me out on for a good reason because I'm the guy, but he doesn't do that. He gives the revelation. So notice now, Uh, In verse 29, he says, While your majesty was sleeping, you dreamed about coming events. So right out of the gate, his first statement is going to tell Nebuchadnezzar he knows what he's talking about. The very first thing he says, you were dreaming about future events. He who reveals secrets shown you what's going to happen. And it's not because I'm wiser than anyone else that I know the secret of your dream, but because God wants you to understand what was in your heart. God wants you to understand what's in your heart. God wants you to understand what you're troubled about. He wants you to understand how much more, if he wanted Nebuchadnezzar to understand, how much more the believer in Jesus Christ. So notice, in your vision, your majesty, you saw standing before you a huge shining statue of a man. It was a frightening sight. The head of the statue was made of fine gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its belly and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron, and its feet were a combination of iron and baked clay. As you watched, a rock was cut from a mountain, but not by human hands. It struck the feet of the iron and clay, smashing them to bits. The whole statue was crushed into small pieces of iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold. Then the wind blew them away without a trace, like chaff on a threshing floor. But the rock that knocked the statue down became a great mountain and covered the whole earth. Remember, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers, they they couldn't do this. But Daniel gave it to him confidently, looking up at him and telling him exactly what happened. I like what David Jeremiah writes commenting on this, and I quote, What Daniel was about to reveal to the most powerful ruler on earth was that his days were numbered. If Daniel were alive today, he could very well stand before the ambassadors of all 193 member states of the United Nations and say, tell the leaders of your nations that their days are numbered. God has shown me a dream about the future of the kingdoms of this world. His kingdom will be established on the earth and will never end. And Daniel was going to give it to him now blow by blow. Nebuchadnezzar saw the image. It was great, splendor, excellent. And the enormity of the image represented humanity's inflated sense of its own accomplishments. People see their achievements as something great, 
and splendid and brilliant, a colossal in construction, all, all the achievements of man. But the image was meant to convey that this world's power is outward greatness from the human perspective. Outward greatness. So it has the head of gold, you notice, the chest and arms of silver, the belly and thighs of bronze, the legs of iron, and the feet were mixed with iron and clay. And as he watched it in his dream, it was crushed by this stone. And it was then blown away like it never existed. And the stone became a mountain. I wonder if you can guess by now who the stone represents in the kingdoms of men. But we'll get to that in a minute. Verse 36 now. It says, that was the dream. Now let me tell the king what it means. Your majesty, you are the greatest of kings. The God of heaven has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and honor. He's made you the ruler over all the inhabited world and has put even the wild animals and birds under your control. You are the head of gold. But after your kingdom comes to an end, another kingdom inferior to yours will rise to take your place. And after that kingdom has fallen, yet a third kingdom represented by bronze will rise to rule the world. Following that kingdom, there'll be a fourth one as strong as iron. That kingdom will smash and crush all previous empires, just as iron smashes and crushes everything it strikes. The feet, the toes you saw were a combination of iron and baked clay, showing that this kingdom will be divided. Like iron mixed with clay, it will have some of the strength of iron. But while some parts of it will be as strong as iron, other parts will be weak as clay. This mixture of iron and clay also shows that these kingdoms will try to strengthen themselves by forming alliances with each other through intermarriage. But they will not hold together just as iron and clay cannot and do not mix. So how fitting is it not that God would use this image for a polytheistic king? He would communicate to him in something he would understand, an image. Because their, their empire was filled with images that they would bow down to. And so how does God communicate to him? With something that's relatable. And that's important for us to understand that we take the Bible and we make it relatable to the person that we're speaking to. That, that we make it relatable. We don't change the message in any way whatsoever. But we understand that we're talking to someone individually, praying for God to give us insight on how to make it relatable to them. How to make it relatable that we might communicate some, the gospel so they would understand it. You know, the simplest way that I would use to describe that, that that happens in the church is, is that if I was teaching this Bible study, this exact Bible study, using these exact notes to second graders, I would do it differently. I would say the same things in many ways. I would read the same Bible, but I would use different illustrations for them. I would probably, instead of standing in front of them like I am here, I'd probably get them on the floor and sit on the floor with them. I would probably play some kind of game with them that they might be able to trust me for the next... I wouldn't do 45 minutes with them either. I'd probably do 20 minutes or 15 minutes. I, I might get them to ooh and awe. I might get them to, to tell me what gold looks like. And anything in the room looks like, I would relate to them so that they would get it. That's the whole point. The whole point of Bible study is that people will get it. Whenever you open the Bible, it's so somebody can get it. When you share it with someone, you want them to get it. And so you need to pray. You need to pray that God will use you to relate to the person that's in front of you. You'd use different illustrations for a married person than you would a single person. We just have a mission team come back for the Philippines. There are cultural things to consider when you go to the Philippines and you're teaching the gospel. They live in a different culture than we do. So we need to make sure that the true unchanging message of the gospel can be related to a different culture 
so that we don't offend them or hurt them. And we got a team going out to Brazil here in a few weeks. Same thing. We want to be relatable to the culture. We want to be relatable. And God is showing us that example to Nebuchadnezzar. He gives him this image of a man. And each section of the man was a kingdom. And one of the things Nebuchadnezzar needed to understand is that his kingdom wouldn't last forever. And let me just tell you, whatever role you have, whatever position you have, whatever leadership you have, it's not going to last forever. You will vacate it one day. I would even put it, go so far to say in my own life, I will not pastor this church forever. There will be, if the Lord doesn't come back first, there will be another pastor of this church. Just by the sake of age, I will not be. And the sake that I have not been destined to live forever, there will be another pastor. And you could say in in any pastor listening, any, any pastor listening, this is an interim position. It is not a permanent position. God is going to move us on if not into some other ministry, but then by death, we're going to be in the presence of the Lord. And you're not going to be playing videos of me after I die. I hope. Don't do it. God's going to have another man and another family, and they're going to pastor this church into another direction. And so it's important for leaders and pastors to always have a Timothy, to always be raising up the next generation, to always be conveying that but always extending the ministry to someone, having a lot of people that you pour yourself into so that not only do you have people you can share the ministry with, but that there's a new segment and a new generations of leaders. And the worst thing you can do is to stifle and strangle the little position that you've been given because like Nebuchadnezzar, it's going to come to an end. Nebuchadnezzar needed to know that because you think not only is, remember Daniel, a man of prophecy, and this is like the end time prophecy is given to us in Daniel, but you can't miss, remember Daniel is a book about God, and God loves Nebuchadnezzar, and he wants to reach him. He doesn't just want to tell him about the future, he wants to reach him, and one of the first things Nebuchadnezzar needed to know is that he's not going to live forever, that his kingdom's coming to an end. Because I'm sure with this kind of absolute authority, you begin to think, I'm going to rule like this forever. And you don't think about your mortality. You don't think about your life and your breath is in the hand of God and that he could call us home at any time. And we don't stifle out the life of someone. When you don't give ministry, when you don't entrust leadership, you, you literally choke the life out of God's ministry. And he won't have that. He will over, if that's you and you're just stifling ministry, you're just strangling ministry, you won't give it away. God will just go around you to someone that will cooperate with him and do a new work through a new person. And I don't know about you, but I don't want that to happen. I want to be used by God until I finish my race, until I finish through the finish line. And Nebuchadnezzar, he needed to know this. Now, the head of gold, of course, represented Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom. And then he says in verse 39 that there's a kingdom coming after you, and it's an inferior one, uh, these two arms of silver. And we know that this is next kingdom. If you're a note taker and a historian, these are the Medo-Persians. It was a combination of the Medes and the Persians. And we're going to read of Darius the Mede ruling over, uh, ruling under Persian control. And it's interesting that Daniel says this new kingdom is inferior Because no longer is the king alone a supreme leader. He was subject to nobles. Then there's a third kingdom, it says in verse 39, uh, represented by the bronze, uh, the belly and thighs of bronze. You know, Alexander the Great, at age 33, he conquered the whole world. A detail that 
is included here at the end. This kingdom will rise to rule the world. This is a little detail that God gave Daniel. And this Alexander the Great, we're told at the base of the Euphrates River that young Alexander wept so convulsively because he came to a place where he said there's nothing else to rule, nothing else to, to conquer. And after his death, this Greek kingdom was then divided among four generals and and uh, only two of them really rose to the top were the two thighs. They became strong and prominent. And all the while, there was another kingdom in the rising, notice. And it says uh, in verse 40, there's a fourth one, as strong as iron, smashing and crushing all previous empires. Anybody want to guess what kingdom that was? It's the Romans. The Romans are, me are mentioned here as iron crushing. The Roman Empire came next. And you can't get a better description of Rome than iron, a steady steamroller as they took over the world, which lead us to the feet of iron and clay. Seems the feet and toes describe another time period altogether. You see, Rome wasn't conquered. It just simply fell apart. Very much like we're seeing in our own country, it fell apart from within morally. It imploded. It wasn't conquered. They took the freedoms that were extended to them and they became morally and uh, corrupt before God, and they, the, Roman, the Roman Empire was, uh, came and was imploded. The ten toes represent ten nations, this confederation, and now we see a, a period of time that has, has taken place between kingdoms for this new revived Roman Empire. It's amazing that for many years nobody believed this could happen, this revived Roman Empire, but today you know the European Union exists. It's, not, it's more than 10 countries for now, but it's exactly as the Bible said. Some are strong, some are weak. Greece is a part of that. And you know, those of you that follow history and follow the news, you know that Greece's economy is in, at the lowest ebb right now, and it's a drain on the European, uh, on this European currency. It's a drain on this confederation. And some nations will come and go. It's happening before our eyes. Europe is rising. The euro, I, I, I should have looked today, but the euro is still stronger than the dollar. It's a strong currency, even with the drag that's going on. And the stronger nations like Germany, the industrial nations like Germany, are carrying the weight. And so the European Union does not want Britain to leave because they're also a strong economy. And it's going to cause chaos and confusion there, which is always when new rulers and leaders rise to the occasion in the time of Christ. It's all before us. Just a careful watching and reading of the news, it's all before us. But Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar this stuff was going to happen thousands of years ago. <laughs> just, you just got to absorb that and go, man, yeah, there is a God in heaven that knows the future. <laughs> there is a God in heaven that knows the future. Even though we don't know how every single detail is all going to work out, it's going to work out. Because there was Nebuchadnezzar. And then the Medo-Persians did come. And then the Greeks did come. And then the Roman Empire did come. And then there was a long gap. And then there was a revived Roman Empire in Europe after Israel was reborn in 1948. It's amazing the world in which we live. And we could do, so I would just say as we study prophecy, we have to be careful that we don't lose the God of prophecy when we get so tripped out by prophecy. You're like, man, this is amazing. God is on the move. You see, in verse 46 now, it says, 
than King Nebuchadnezzar. Well, verse 44, that's where we left off. During the reigns of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness, and it will stand forever. That is the meaning of the rock cut from the mountain, though not by human hands that's crushed to pieces the statue of iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold. It doesn't matter what kingdom at land, what kind of rulership, they're all going to be crushed. The great God was showing the king what will happen in the future. The dream is true and his meaning is certain. Then King Nebuchadnezzar threw himself down before Daniel and worshipped him. And he commanded his people to offer sacrifices and burn sweet incense before him. The king said to Daniel, Truly your God is the greatest of gods, the Lord over kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this secret. And the king appointed Daniel to a high position, gave him many valuable gifts. He made Daniel ruler over the whole province of Babylon, as well as chief over his wise men. At Daniel's request, now Daniel, now Daniel's telling King Nebuchadnezzar what to do. He had a death sentence. And see how fast God switches it around? Now Nebuchadnezzar is listening to him to appoint his friends in good positions. He was going to kill them. Do you remember that? The beginning of the chapter? And now he asks, hey, would you put... I don't think he's being uh, rude or anything. He's requesting. He's got the, an audience. And at Daniel's request, King appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be in charge of all the affairs of the province of Babylon. Daniel remained in the king's court. So here's the rock. It strikes the image. That rock representing the kingdom, uh, representing Jesus Christ and his everlasting kingdom that's still yet in the future. This, this rock is referred to in other places as Jesus. Psalm 118, if you're writing it down, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. Therefore, what the sovereign Lord says, look, I am placing a foundation stone in Jerusalem, a firm and tested stone. It's precious safe to build on, whoever believes need never be shaken. And you have this young teenage boy giving the interpretation in 6th century B.C. before it's any, any of it is even close to taking place, before any of it is even on the horizon. And Nebuchadnezzar is affected, as many times, most times, we're affected when we hear the truth. Here he falls on his face. He's used to worshiping anyone and anything, so he worships Daniel but he'll soon find the, and be introduced to the true king as he's on his face before Daniel asking incense to be offered to this little slave boy, this little kidnapped kid. God is ministering to Nebuchadnezzar in the deepest parts of his heart. God, I believe, is desiring to get Nebuchadnezzar's attention, to get his attention. And he recognizes God in his forever kingdom. It's too bad it's not a full confession. And we'll know that by the rest of the book. It's not a full confession. There's still more work to be done in Nebuchadnezzar, which as we leave here today, kind of bringing a full circle to us. Instead of putting people down and making fun of them, you know, everybody has a story. Everybody has a story. And most of the time, they don't share that story. All you see is the end result. People were hurt when they were kids and it affected them the rest of their life. People were lied to at a certain stage. They made a bad decision at a stage in their life. Everybody has a story, but you only see what's in front of you. But if you can keep in mind that God wants to reach people, no matter what their story is, it will help you not to just write them off because they're different from you. I posted not too long ago a study by Pastor Miles McPherson as he taught at one of the conferences I came from. 
Uh, and he did a masterful job of describing to us the, the admonition of Jesus Christ of loving your neighbor and how important it is to love your neighbor. And the whole point of that teaching of Jesus is that everyone is your neighbor. Everyone is your neighbor. So therefore, everyone is to be loved. But what we do is we like to label people as something whether it might, might be their behavior, it might be their actions, it might be the color of their skin, it might be what country they came from, what language they spoke, whatever. We, there are multitudes of labels that are used by us as humans to label someone so that they're no longer our neighbor. Instead of seeing as our neighbor, they are, and then you fill in the blanks, they're this and this, and they're that, and they're the, and these people, and they need to go. And, and so we get in caught up and know they're not our neighbor anymore. So then in our minds, whether consciously or subconsciously, we in our minds immediately excuse ourselves from the clear instruction of Jesus to love our neighbor and that everyone's our neighbor. And that's not the will of God for us to go around labeling people. It's the will of God for us to go around loving people. That's the will of God, because everyone's your neighbor. Everyone is my neighbor. Everyone is my neighbor. Everyone is your neighbor. And God, what he wants to see is more love. Yeah, even Nebuchadnezzar, even a president you don't agree with, even a principal you don't like, even a teacher that you don't agree with, a policeman that pulled you over, a person from another country, legal, illegal, paper, no paper, every label you can think of, they're your neighbor. And God is wanting us. Because you look at someone like Nebuchadnezzar and you think, man, the best thing for him is just to get him out. But that's not true. The best thing for Nebuchadnezzar was not to get him out, although it may be well for him to be not in a place of leadership. The best thing for Nebuchadnezzar was for him to come in relationship with God and be transformed by the power of God. And that's the narrative throughout the scriptures. God's heart to transform rebels. Because you and I were rebels <laughs> before we were born again. Some of you are still a little stubborn and rebellious. But God still loves you. And even as you identify something in someone, it doesn't excuse you from loving them unconditionally. We're traveling through Daniel one verse at a time with Pastor Ed Taylor on Abounding Grace. Before we part ways, just a few things we want to tell you about. If you'd like to hear today's message again, log on to AboundingGraceRadio.com. Again, on the web, we're at AboundingGraceRadio.com. You can also download our free app and access our teachings that way. Search for Calvary Aurora. Pastor Ed, we picked out a book written by Tom Doyle called Standing in the Fire. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about it? You know, Larry, I, I picked this book this month because of all of the pressure and warfare and difficulties that we've been experiencing here in our own country, all the changes and the lockdowns and the restrictions and the quarantines and the isolation uh, I was encouraged by this book a few years ago by Tom Doyle. It's called Standing in the Fire, Courageous Christians Living in Frightening Times. And as we follow Jesus, uh, we, we learn more and more through the fire how to stand courageously. And this is a book that gives us testimony after testimony 
of men and women in the Middle East that are standing up for the gospel in the in the midst of of great terror. You know, ISIS. This was just a few years ago where ISIS was very popular. And Tom Doyle gives commentary on events and stories and gives testimonies of Christians not living like victims, but living as victors in Christ. And it, it's one of those things that gives us perspective. I love to read especially books of missionaries and those that are serving in other countries to remind me of the perspective of serving Jesus Christ. This one is a collection of testimonies and commentary of believers living in the Middle East and all of the challenges, but also the triumphs and how they've chosen to live victoriously. Very important that you read this and be encouraged by the testimonies of others. It's powerful, and I know you'll be built up and edified in Jesus Christ. We'll gladly send you a copy of Standing in the Fire when you support Abounding Grace with a gift of $25 or more. Call 877-30-GRACE. As you give to the ministry, you are a powerful tool in God's hands. He uses each and every gift that comes in to help us continue getting the word out on stations like this one all across the nation. Well, don't miss our next study in Daniel. It's going to be a good one. That's right here on Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Church in Aurora, Colorado. 